Well, we're here at the final episode of this powerful exploration on season three of Unknowing Podcast, Composting Christianity. Together, we have explored the foundations of how Christianity became empire, became synonymous with domination and power over, and how we might rewild and reroot whatever is helpful of that spiritual belief system into a wilder ecological worldview, a way of living and creating that animates a more communal paradigm. I knew from the beginning of this exploration that I really wanted to get Andreas Weber on the show, and I'm so thrilled to be able to close out the season with this remarkable conversation with one of my absolute favorite authors and thinkers. Andreas Weber is a biologist, philosopher, and nature writer. His books include Enlivenment, Torta Poetics for the Anthropocene, Sharing Life, the Ecopolitics of Reciprocity, and his latest book, which we discuss in great detail in this conversation, Matter and Desire, an Erotic Ecology. Now, as you've probably already noticed, this closing episode is a little bit long. I thought about splitting it up into two segments, but I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. It is its own spell, and I wanted to invite you into the cauldron of this conversation in its entirety. Be sure to stick around at the end for some extended reflections on my part, some takeaways not just from this conversation, but from the entire season of this exploration we've been on together. With that, let's dive right in to this closing episode of Season 3 of Unknowing Podcast, Composting Christianity with Andreas Weber. Andreas, thank you so much for being willing to come on to the show and speak with me. Normally, I begin these conversations by asking the map that you were handed to make sense of reality when you were growing up. And in your case, I also want to ask if you could situate our listeners in the maps that comprise your ecology now, too, living both in Germany and Italy, as you do. That's a very interesting question. Um, I'm not sure if I was handed out a map or if I was handed out instructions um, on various little sheets um, contradicting one another. So I think I, there was no map. There were some programs and some um, do's and some don'ts. And um, I didn't know that they wouldn't make sense if they were all connected. That, that was a big work to understand that actually it was not a map. <laughs> it was something very different. But um, we, are all, we all need to unravel sort of these um, paradoxical childhood maps in order to draw our own map later, I think. So that was my work as well. Um, but part of this was um, something very precious, um, which was a profound reverence for other than human beings. I don't say nature because that makes makes it immediately an object, and I don't want to say this. So I've grown up with the with with this um, spiritual closeness to the more than human world all my all my childhood, and I I also brought this. So there, there might be some genetics have been at play in this. So that was that was very good, and um, 
as you can see in my work where I'm writing about life and trying to understand life, um, this never went away. So that was a very, very important part. But it's, it wasn't the only line on the map. There were more lines, <laughs> but they, they don't matter that much here right now. And what was the other question about the, the actual maps I'm drawing? Yeah, somewhat. Like if you could help situate our listeners to the terrain, the landscape that okay. comprises your ecology now. Okay. Yeah, so actually the, the landscape is actually the landscape. So when I'm looking out of the window here in my flat in Berlin, I'm looking into the autumnal um, trees and bushes and the lawn, which somehow have a little bit recovered from this crazy drought, but not really. So um, that's actually my landscape. So my landscape is the living world in which I am always situated, in which we're all always situated with every breath, because every breath is a connection to all other living beings who also breathe in and breathe out, and with every bite of food and um, and actually with every instant of our um, pulsating bodies, we're, we're, we're doing this. We're, we're exploring a landscape in a very physical sense. So that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm trying to, to live through. It's not only theory. It's also um, daily life, life from minute to minute, to make sense of this um, incredible, precious, sweet coexistence with all other beings which i can feel in any instant on my skin in my lungs in my mouth on my eyes and um it might sound a little bit trivial because it's so normal in a way but doing this in a profound way not forgetting about the fact that we are um, alive and that aliveness means to be co-aliveness with life itself is, I think, a very deep understanding. It's very simple and it's very deep. In, in the little corner remaining, um, I'm trying to communicate this. So that's everything, to trying to communicate how it is to be a productive participant in the delicious unfolding of life. That is so beautiful and it's such a great um, segue into our conversation about your premise of erotic ecology. So you say that Eros is the principle of creative plenitude, the principle of superfluity, of sharing, of communication, of the self-actualization that lies dormant, even in rocks and minerals. And I know that for many listeners, this is a new way to think about the erotic, which to most humans is compressed almost exclusively to the realm of human sexual relations. So mm -hmm. I wonder if you could help our listeners understand what comprises an erotic worldview. Yeah, I, I know that's surprising for most of us when I, when I tell it with this twist. And I remember that my editor, the German editor and then the American editor of my book, which goes as erotic ecology in the subtitle, they they both somehow wanted to not to do this because they said, oh, that's, <laughs> that sounds like sex in, sex in nature, <laughs> and, and, uh, which is not such a bad thing after all, but they didn't want to have it on the cover. Uh -uh. But then I, I somehow persuaded them that, that we, it would be good to do this. It would also be good to do this because it's, it's, for, for many people, it sounds like slightly provoking and um, 
and it, somehow like they they need to ask themselves what what is that actually and as you already said i think that so so the the errors uh, the erotic about which i speak and errors um, in my eyes are much wider than sex and one of the tragedies of western civilization is that that it has limited the understanding of errors to um sexual exchange between human partners and um, sexual neediness and sexual um, greediness and all this consumerism in body-to-body -body encounter. And, um, and by this, we've, we've lost actually the, the, the whole picture of embodied exchange, which is the way how life unfolds in reality, or let's see, we can even say how reality unfolds in its aliveness. As we know, it is an embodied process. So it's, mm. it's, it has always this sensuous um, dimension of bodily contact. We, we cannot avoid it. It starts with physics. It starts with chemistry. Molecules meet and um, react with one another. And that's, that's actually already something about bodies crashing into one another, about impacts on bodies. And it's also about desire. Like, you know, like oxygen loves to be together with hydrogen. And this gives something very beautiful, which is water. What I really want to point at is that the physical dimension of this world is not just, it's not rightly understood if we see it as cause and effect. But we need to see it as intense contact between diverse individuals. And, um, and we also need to see that it is not just neutral encounter. That's how we have learned it in school. After all, this is only physics and it's completely meaningless, etc. It's not a neutral encounter, but it is always, um, it has always a sphere of meaningfulness and a sphere of um, signification to this. Because Eros actually is happening when a physical contact opens up some deeper understanding about an inwardness connected to this. Mm. And, um, and to my eyes, that's the way this whole world functions. It has a sensitive outside, which is a, which is a, a skin over a feeling inside, which is always touched when sensitive outsides meet, and they, they need to meet, they always meet, they, they must meet. When we breathe, I, I was talking about breathing, mm. our lungs meet with oxygen physically. Oxygen uh, wanders through the tender membranes on our little, uh, the little um, extensions of, of the, the finest cells of our lungs. So this is a physical merger. And the oxygen comes from the green leaves of the trees, where it all, also um, was. This was also was was it emerged there in a physical way. So we are actually caressing the trees, but with every breath, and um, and this has a meaningful side to it. And so for me, it's very important to to awaken this dimension of um, lived life, which has been uh, neglected by natural science who wanted to see results and what we didn't want to talk about how we experience the world because it wanted to change the world and um, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a huge loss and I try to make up a little bit for this. Hmm. Yeah, 
Well, you do. And that, that um, intermingling, interpenetrating site of communion in the realm of bodiliness, you write as the, as the location of our ultimate purpose, which is enlivenment. And you say being alive means participating in permanent community and continually reinventing oneself as part of an immeasurable network of relationships. And in the title of one of the sections of that chapter where you're describing this, you say, we're not individuals, we're colonies. So you drive mm. this home so much more than just a concept, but a form of bodily perception, a way of seeing, touching, understanding, and feeling that the me is really a we. Mm. Um, and, and it's one that relieves us from our trauma, our human trauma and drama <laughs> of false isolation mm. and places us back in the flux of reciprocity. So how does this foundational shift transform our orientation to the goal of enlivenment from mm. an individual, like I need to pursue my own satisfaction and happiness in life to enlivenment is only possible when it enlivens the whole. Yeah, thanks for this question. Thanks for, for these nice quotations from my work, actually. It's, it's, as I don't continuously reread myself, it's always nice to, <laughs> to be reminded. Think, oh, who wrote this? It's really good. <laughs> it's, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, it's always when I, when I start a new book and I'm sitting there in front of the blank page and then I, I have the bad idea to look at older books, I read them and I think, oh, God. I can't do this again. It's impossible. <laughs> so, okay, but now I need to, un first I need to understand myself and then I need to ask, answer your question. But, but apart from jokes aside, um, so m maybe it already somehow um, came through in, in what, what I have been saying before. A simple idea of individuality as something relatively um, sovereign and fixed um, is not compatible actually with the, the, the ecological truth and not even with the emotional truth. So um, my idea is that individuality is something which is continuously in the making and um, it is continuously in the making through the transformation and meeting and co-creation with and of others. As I'm a biologist and I'm fascinated by these, um, let's say, by these um, non-objective, non-objectifying processes at the very level of biology, I'm, I'm, I always start to look first at what, what is happening actually to a living being, what is happening to a body, what is happening to a cell. There we can find that um, in life, uh, life means to take up um, matter um, and, and not only matter, also uh, also cues and information, but let's keep at this matter from from other beings and build them into ourselves. Mm. So um, individuals never keep the same. They they need to rebuild themselves from others. So that we have this continuous flow through various individuals who are chained together through this and who can only exist if they um, keep doing this. So if they actually admit in a way, so if they live up to the fact that they are not sheltered from one another. And um, so interestingly, the goal to, uh, which is actually a civilizational goal, is cultural goal to uh, build up your well-defined sovereign identity breaks with this biological notion that we can have identities only through sharing with others, only through incorporating others. 
And um, I think that's a very important point. You could also say we can have identities only through erotic exchange. We cannot have them if we insist on um, cutting ties, on dominating others, on, on putting us um, apart um, or away. Uh, but that's precisely what um, many of the um, principles um, to which our civilization looks up um, are suggesting, like um, be better than the others, uh, make yourself somehow watertight against any um, disturbance, all these all these metaphors of success which are so ingrained in our society run actually counter what is going on in life. And on a profound level, we also know this. We also know that only if we become permeable to others and if we really open ourselves to others and if we let go into letting ourselves be truly seen or even invaded by others, um, we feel truly present and truly alive. So, so here, um, from the perspective of erotic ecology, we can, we can really start um, building our ideas of relationships from, a, from, from the start again, which is very different than it's, um, we, we see it in our civilization right now. But this is, this is in contrast to pretty much the natural orientation, and I shouldn't say natural, the unnatural orientation of society that you describe as emotional capitalism. You define that term as to transform the world into something dead in order to evade one's own death. Mm -hmm. In other words, it seems like the project of modernity really has been about, you know, erecting these artificial walls that you were describing as the sovereign self. Mm. And even in the architecture of our, of our spiritualities, of our religions, is this project of perfection to conquer death ultimately, right? Mm. One of my favorite chapters in your book is on death. And in this chapter, you say some of my favorite lines. Okay, I'm going to start quoting you back to you again. <laughs> where, you say, <laughs> where you say, only because of death does life become creative. Yeah. And in this section, you articulate enlivenment as necessitating an embrace of death within life. Mm. And this is, again, moving in the opposite direction as modernity, and that we must learn to die. You say, life moves through death in order for it to become itself. Mm. So how is learning to accept what is about this relationship between life and death, which is to say, not trying to make it pretty, not trying to rewrite the ending, not trying to create these grand eschatologies of salvation, not trying to perfect the plot or even hide mm. what is imperfect. How are mm. all of these things a turn toward enlivenment? Yeah, yeah. well, you, you already said that our culture is, um, is hair to religious tradition, which, um, which is actually about evading death by behaving in a way that is sanctioned by the, the ruler of the world. So if you, if you behave well, you're granted with eternal life. So, so, so our civilization um, somehow has the avoidance of death in its core. And you could even argue that um, the whole technological endeavor, probably even the, the, the main driving force of capitalism, is actually goes into the direction of avoiding death, becoming always better, changing the condition of, of life for humans. So it's a sort of um, secularized um, 
aspiration for redemption, mm -hmm. which doesn't work, as we know, because we are where we see the the ecology around us ourselves crashing, and we all know about these various crises. We're in very hot crises right now at the moment. Um, so, but but it's it's very interesting that we have this this profound. Um, distrust of death. Let's say, let's call it distrust of death. Mm -hmm. We try to do as many things as possible in our lives, because then some at some point the light will be switched off, and so we, we need to avoid this. We know this. We don't have really. We, we don't incorporate death in our in our um, cultural traditions. It's somehow at the side, and and this is all. It's, it's all in my eyes a, a reaction to. While I'm talking, I'm actually thinking, why, why actually did this happen? Because in, in other <laughs> cultures, in more traditional cultures, it's very different. Um, and um, it's very different because um, death is, um, it's a transition, but it's not absolute. Mm. It's, it's, it's actually a, a very major transformation, but it doesn't mean that after it, it's over. So actually, it, it can't be over because you are always part of this network of transformations. And the network of transformations is always material, but it's always also an experiential process. So there's also the dimension of your personal experience in, in, some, in some respect is part of the world and um, you can't be kicked out of this. So um, becoming a little bit more concrete, talking about from the perspective of my um, idea of erotic ecology, the way bodies function is by breaking down and building themselves up again. And breaking down means building um, parts of other bodies into our own body. So actually dying is the profound law of ecological processes. And, and again, it's also happening in every moment while, while we are living, while our, we're, we are breathing, our body breaks down and is um, cast into the atmosphere as as CO2. Um, so it's it's actually death is actually not a destructive process, but it's a creative process. It's a it's a hmm. metamorphotic process. And if we stop it, we stop the metamorphosis which is at the core of life. So the important thing is to get another um, idea of what is actually happening when we are talking about breaking down. Um, and to see it as part of a creative process which needs to be fed and not to see it as a sort of um, defeat or dead-end street. I don't talk about the opposition between life and death as it's normally done. Normally we, we say, okay, there's life and there's death. I say um, there's only life and there's birth and there's death. So there's mm. going down, dissolving and reconfiguring. But this is both part of life, and this is both part of life even in the same moment. It's happening at the same moment. And from this perspective, many things become a very different meaning. And then it's, it also becomes clear that in many moments it is absolutely necessary to die. And when I say die, I don't mean, the, the, let's say, the, the, the great death, the, the end of um, embodied individuality, but all these little deaths which we regularly try to evade, and then we pay the price of less aliveness because we try, we evade these little deaths which are needed breakdowns in unfolding and um, and development and co-creation 
Yeah, so I mean, the, the important thing actually is to is really to see that there is no death as an absolute. There is no death as a blackout, as light switched off, as that end of the track. That's actually, I think this is really, it's really a distraction to think it like this. It's such a perfect um, setup for, you know, one of the core explorations on the, on this particular season, which is the discomfort that we have around death mm -hmm. goes to the extreme of trying to uphold institutions that are naturally needing to cycle into death. Mm -hmm. In other words, we have such a, a fear of death or such a negative worldview of death. And those who have been listening to you speak just now who might be, you know, have a Christian mystical orientation might be saying, oh, but this is super compatible because, you know, we believe in this Paschal mystery of death and resurrection. And yet, I would like to point out that even in that theological worldview, most of us have a tendency to pit life as mm. the victor mm. over death, as opposed to it all being this one great composting, recycling process. Mm. Um, and you say, you know, in order to let in the living world, I must be completely vulnerable and must learn to be truly defenseless in a state of utter precariousness. I must exist in absolute uncertainty in order to completely perceive reality. So this is an undefended stance of mm -hmm. vulnerability as a practice, making friends or communing with the dying aspect of life. Mm -hmm. And this undefended stance is not at all how our ego tends to work, and you name this. So Richard Rohr, whom I know you are a fan of, his latest work was based on this Teilhardian concept of a universal Christ, which is to see and experience we'll call it the Christic or reality baptized as sacred, as another name for everything. Mm -hmm. And so for those who are a fan of his work, how does that mystical worldview and your erotic ecological worldview both become realized only in the vulnerable mm -hmm. humility of unknowing mm -hmm. death, as you describe? Yeah, lovely. That was a great transition you, you did there. Fantastic. Very, very inspiring what you're saying. <laughs> and I absolutely can out myself as a fan of Richard Rohr. I think I quote him at least once, but I, I, rem I quote him with this beautiful sentence when, when he says, the, the sacred means to be completely true to yourself. Something. There, there's several things here. I, I try one by one. <laughs> Let's see how many things there are. You, you know, that, like these tweets, they start <laughs> with one and, and then, then they become 19 and 20 little retweets. Little answers to themselves. Um, so, so one thing is one thing is very important. Death and dying is not pleasant. Um, it's truly a challenge. And I'm not saying, hey, there is no death. Um, it's all all is okay. All is sweet. It's just an illusion, etc. It's death means undergoing profound change, mm -hmm. and this is always an impact to one's ongoing recreation. It's not. Um, eating cake. So that's very important. And, and still, it is part of how your own aliveness unfolds. That's also very important. Because that shows that what, is, what counts is letting aliveness unfold and being in service of this unfolding aliveness. And this means automatically that um, all instances in which something must die need to be appreciated and accepted as part of serving the unfolding of life. 
because otherwise it can't. It will be blocked. So they become very minor in a way. I have a beautiful quote from the first panpsychist philosopher of European um, philosophical history, Spinoza. And Spinoza says, the free man is not afraid of death because the only thing he is interested in is life. So if you're actually about to go with life and to be in service of life becoming more alive, of becoming fuller, of, real, of life realizing itself, of life exploring all the unknown possibilities of itself, then being afraid of dying in this process is absolutely in your way. It will, it will stop this. It will stop your freedom. So that's one thing. And the other thing is actually that the greatest thing that can happen to you is to listen to life in yourself and to be in service of this. Because it is the greatest imaginable sweetness which can happen to you if you do this. And this is something which you somehow need to experience. At least you need to have a glimpse of this. Because people might not believe you, it's true. <laughs> so, so actually, the sentence I, I quoted Spinoza with right now, is not, it's not a theoretical statement of a philosopher. It's a mystical experience. It's something he knows. It's something he knows that we all, in a secret place in ourselves, are flown through by something which is not ourselves, but at the same time, which is that which which gives us our presence. And this is what is really worthwhile to be in service of. This is actually the only thing to be in service of. And, um, and then everything is okay. Everything is all right. And, and from this standpoint, I understand um, Richard Raw's idea that um, being true to yourself, and I mean, this is, this is the self in, inside of yourself you need to be true to. That's the quality of the saint. Um, because he doesn't, he's not distracted. He's only following the, the truth of fertile unfolding of something which is not even him. It's, it's going through him, but it is necessary for, for life to go on. And the beautiful thing is that I'm looking around myself again through these bay windows, which you can't see because you can only see the, the back walls with the, with the books, that all these other beings, the the maples in their autumn colors and the grass and the, the sparrows, the, all these other beings automatically do this. They're doing this because they, they don't really know how to choose not to do this. They, they're doing it all the time. And they're never afraid of death. They're going through their lives in the right direction and um, don't run away. Yeah, so that's what comes to my mind here. But, but the important thing is actually, you see, the important thing is, I think it's the condition for all what I've been saying, is that you, you, you need, really need to accept that there is something which is more important than yourself, which is, which is life, not your life, but life as such, life as life-giving. And it's more important than yourself, but it is also in yourself. You can be true to yourself in being true to this which is more than yourself in yourself. And then you'll find your bearings. Mm. <laughs>
you 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 gave me that you gave me that question, so I need I needed okay. just needed to answer it on that level, actually. Yeah, I did this. it's it's a it's a brilliant. It's this is what I really wanted to talk about. I really want to talk about right now in the stage of my of the of work I am in right now. So thank you, thank you for that question. Oh, well, good. <laughs> well, you you write about. I think you even quote. Scotus's hastity, this idea of thisness, which I know has been very foundational to Richard's view. But many people who have studied the mystics Mm -hmm. have noted that there is this radical presence, Mm -hmm. you know, and Richard describes a mystic as one who has had an unmediated Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. of the divine and trusts the authority Mm -hmm. of their experience. Okay. However, one of the mistakes that I notice on, you know, on our part, our human way of studying things and trying to create clean categories and architectures about everything, you know, we're always trying to make mm. maps. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, maybe we need to unknow these maps because the maps that we make around the mystics is to project onto them this spiritual ascent, mm. this journey upward out of humanity. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of unknowing, you know, because I hear you describing death as what I describe, or this this surrender into death as life, this devotion and reverence of life that includes death as unknowing. For me, unknowing is to die to what we mm-hmm. think we know, to make mm-hmm. room for what mm-hmm. could be. Even what we think we know about the constructs and determinism of our words, of our theologies, of our philosophies. So one of the things, you know, speaking of unknowing, that you invite us to unknow in your book. <laughs> I literally screamed out loud in joy when you got when I got to this part is you invite us to unknow the foundations of Platonism. Okay. <laughs> I was yeah. Very mm. happy about this. Is you talk about touch and the senses and you know we've been talking about this in this conversation. The body is a place of communion and communication which is all part of this erotic approach to ecology. And I so appreciate it because you're centering the body, which again seems obvious, but philosophy has not historically made the senses or the bodily as a site for transformation, Mm. thanks to Plato, right? Because so much of it has rested on Plato's descriptions of reality as being a product of separation and, you know, even separating the ideal or what is perfect as being, you know, ideas that can't decay, right? So we've placed perfection outside of the natural realm of life, Mm. which has yielded more separation between our sense of self and bodiliness. And I really see this as like a foundational issue, (laughs) Uh, like a sort of, um, I call it like a hangover. We have a platonic hangover (laughs) and we're all walking around nauseous, but we can't figure out why. And like, we're not, you know, we're not going to church. People are giving up on religion. Like our institutions are falling apart. And I'm like, okay, can we address the thing that brought us to this point? Mm. Which is, you know, this one man's view has shaped so much of history. So talk to us about the need to compost Plato's myths <laughs> and maybe embrace a biological anti-Platonism. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Again, um, thanks. It's very inspiring to listen to you. And um, I mean, I among my friends and colleagues um, are those who always... Um, contradict me when I'm I'm declaring that Plato was the first huge step out of our awareness that we have a direct access to 
the core of existence. There are those who say, no, no, no. You know, actually, Plato was the last of the shamans, and he wanted to show this, and he just wanted to give words to this. So, so the, I, I'd say the struggle is open. I'm not a specialist. So, so maybe it's, it's also the way um, his concepts got ingrained and got used, which gave this separation of the two worlds, the, the one we could access and the one real world beyond. And the problem is the denied access to, the world, to, the, the, to this real world beyond. That's the big problem. Because then it means that, and this is in, in his, um, the parable of the cave, it's, it's so clear. It's, it's actually, everything down here is ultimately devalued. And there's something better somewhere. <laughs> so as long as, um, as a, a severe father god um, is watching over that which is beyond, you somehow need to patiently wait and don't sin and, until you're elevated to paradise after your death. But if this guardian goes away and, and you have the idea that actually, you know, maybe we humans can somehow access this by constructing stuff, um, then it becomes full-fledged Anthropocene in a way. So it's, it's a realization of what Plato said by the guy who found the telecommand <laughs> and said, okay, I can, I, can somehow, I, can, I can somehow make it move. The biggest problem um, is to cut the bridge, which goes from our, let's say, um, unclear experience in everyday life into the participation in the process of life, which we have an experience of. So if you say, no, no, this is, this is not possible, then you, you leave everyone mutilated and um, colonized because um, everyone has to renounce a part of his faculty, of his most important faculty. So wh what I was saying before is that we, we all are owners of the core of reality. We all have this in ourselves. Otherwise, we wouldn't be alive at all. I mean, being alive is access to the core of reality, which is alive. So we all have this. And um, if you deny this, if you have something and somebody goes to you and says, no, no, you don't have it, you know. You see, this is absolutely toxic behavior. And this is traumatizing. This is damaging. It's like telling your, your child, well, you're actually unmusical and you're stupid and repeating it every day and repeating it in school. And you know what will come out of this. It, a traumatized person who is, who is probably keen on killing others. <laughs> Does that sound like a description of our civilization? <laughs> so um, the, the important thing is, to me, the, the big fascination is in opening up these um, channels which connect every one of us to the middle, to the center of a living reality, and, and to insist that, um, that they work, that we can use them, and if we use them, that we actually start to feel whole. And we don't need all these substitutes. We don't need all these identity struggles, like so many people telling me, I'm not sure about my identity, so I'm, I'm trying various, I tried this and I tried that, and I'm always very severe and very consequential, but then it didn't work, and actually I don't have any idea. So, because if you have access to this flowing aliveness, which is reality, then you stop asking for your identity. Then, because it doesn't matter of if you're 
if you wear a white shirt or a, or a green shirt or whatever, it, it, it only matters that you're, you're flown through by the pulse of life. Uh, which you which you nourish. That's the only important thing. So yes, in this respect, I don't know if you expected this kind of answer. So in this respect, um, what has happened uh, through the work of Plato was a colonizing effect on every human's access to living creativity mm. and culture. Instead of being centered around nourishing the creative of aliveness shared with all beings, uh, started to be um, about um, giving some people a little bit more access and giving others a little bit less access and um, giving non-human um, beings no access at all. So it started about um, hierarchies and deciding who is ordering the killings. And it, it became very traumatic. And we are living in, in the middle of this traumatic culture. The hierarchy that you're describing, this is, I think... One of the foundational curiosities that I want my listeners to have, mm. or I want to engender in my listeners, um, around this structuring, this domination paradigm structuring that is at play within religion itself even. Um, and Richard, by the way, tells the story that when he was leaving seminary, his professor said, now remember, Christianity has more to do with Plato than it does to do with Christ. <laughs> And then he walked out mm. of the room. <laughs> and I think it's crucial to get curious about where the concrete, you know, where the concrete has been poured over the living earth of our own inherent experiential authority. And, and I'm so glad and grateful that you brought up creativity, right? Because I've had this instinct all along, Andreas, that Creativity is both the site of transformation and the expression of it. Mm -hmm. That in giving oneself away, it is, you know, I'm quoting Ladislaus Boros where he says, death is the most personal act that we will ever be able to do, right? So my experience, and, and maybe this is because mm -hmm. I'm an artist, that mm -hmm. I found that making is a way of expressing meaning, that giving myself away, dying to myself mm -hmm. by pouring myself out was a true act of contemplation that there's something about this self-emptying act of ecstatic love, a love that originates from plenitude, not from need, and travels outward in a generosity of, of freedom, of gift, is fundamental to being alive. And I think your book was the first time that that instinct mm -hmm. was affirmed in me philosophically with erotic ecology next to it. But there's this discomfort that the religious mind has around that, that freedom because mm -hmm. it almost has a sense of like well who's mm -hmm. under whose mm -hmm. authority are you wildly giving yourself away and calling it prayer or gift and i think it's this authority that that mysticism and erotic ecology as you describe it is calling us back into the site of our own experiential truth and freedom um and so one of the things that you write about in your book is on the poetic, poetry as the language spoken in the confrontation of this tension, which is not a fixed frame. And sometimes I think Richard leans on paradox as a bit of a fixed frame. It just mm. sort of stays there. Mm. But I like that you put in dynamism into that tension. You, you know, the way you describe mm. that tension is that it produces a desire, which manifests as a creative force, or at least that's my interpretation. Um, as an expression of that joy, of that love. So I wonder if you could, as we begin to wrap up, 
describe for us how creativity then is a practice of our dying as a giving of ourselves away mm. for the enlivenment of the whole. You know, how is the poetic, this expression of love and bodily imagination? I'm really fascinated to listen to you because um, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see um, your, your own version of, of this um, mystical experience of life and mystical expression of life. And um, let me try to start by saying this, that um, creativity and aliveness are, um, are actually two sides of the same coin. They're, they're more or less the same thing. So, so aliveness is inherently creative. It's inherently creative because it is. It, it always needs to expand. So aliveness, in its in its innermost core, is aliveness, the desire to give more aliveness. So if you if you really go, <laughs> the, the Buddhists would say, or a certain Buddhist school um, would say, that to the ground, to the base, um, then the core of aliveness is a non-local, non-temporal desire to give life. So it's about giving. And giving is creating. It is, aliveness is inherently creative, and it is inherently creative in the sense of giving, not in the sense of desiring for myself. And again, this, is, this innermost core is also your innermost core. We all have this. In a little chamber in our heart, we have this innermost core. We all carry this. And it's also the core of reality. So giving life is the way you can manifest this. That's your way of acting according to this ground zero of reality. And um, this can have many, many ways. So it can have the way that you produce sweet apples in autumn and many others can eat them or it can have the the way that you you treat your children in a way that they can unfold their personalities or it can have the way that you're creating something which entices others to yearn for giving life and that's art art is a way of giving art is a way of of strengthening the desire of reality to create more life. So you see, my take on creativity is that it's about giving, and giving is about being in service of life. And that's, that is what it is about, because that is what, what the whole thing is trying to do and yearning for. And um, if you do this, if you do this, or if I do it, if a being does this, we feel good, we feel right, we feel okay. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take anything more. We don't need anything more. Everything else is just decorum. It's just details. It's just, it's absolutely negligible. But this is what we need to do in, in order to feel okay. When I appreciate too that you delineate a differentiation between how we understand ourselves and, and how we understand love. In other words, mm -hmm. there's a form of love that is popularized in culture, a form of expression that is based on incompleteness, is based on the idea of separateness, of mm. I need. Yeah. 
you know, this need for completion or I need this fulfillment. And so you see that some expressions are oriented from trying to meet this vacuum. And yet there is another approach, which is one which is grounded in this erotic ecological worldview. Mm-hmm. If the me is a we, right? If I make that transition of selfhood into an orientation of a web-like identity, an identity that is always composting itself. So, you know, screw identities. But (laughs) this web-like structure Mm. of being allows me to operate from plenitude, from abundance, from a place that is not expressing itself out of a need, out of an unmet need, but out of gift. Yeah, gift is the the term. Sorry, I'm I'm kind of trying to interrupt you because because now you you've said just that much that I can answer very well and um now <laughs> you, again you you again <laughs> no I mean it's very rich but then it's it's so rich that I I, I need to somehow need to need to cut a, a path through the the undergrowth and no no because you you brought the you mentioned the the term love which I'm I'm also talking about and and there's also there's still something I wanted to say to the to your other question it, that's about um, why don't people give themselves the permission to follow this 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 call of um, aliveness in this innermost part of their of their existences why do why do they need to heed to authorities mm-hmm. even though it might it might be so obvious because we all have this so actually the idea in our culture of um, of love is wrong in many ways so it's already wrong because we think it's a feeling but then it's also wrong because we think it's something which has to do with filling a lack this is what you said before there's a need and we love this which fills our need and this also goes back to Plato, as you know, the, the myth um, in, in the dialogue symposium about the, the original um, wholeness of humans. And then they split into two halves. And now we're all these halves. Every one of us is a half and we are looking for the other half. Right. So, so I'm looking at you. Uh, could, you, could, you could you be my other half? And there, there goes the idea that if we find this half, then we're perfect, we're complete. And we are ideal, and we we finally back in the in the cosmos of ideas of Plato. But as you as as we all know from a certain age on, it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't really work out. So there are no halves; there are only fragments. And um, the thing which is wrong in this is that love is conceived from the perspective of needing something for myself. So the wrongness is the ego in this. So the, the idea that love is about mm. something for myself. And actually, it is just the opposite way. It's just the, the contrary. Love is about doing and giving something so that another can live. That's, you see, I have a definition for love. It's being interested in the aliveness of the other, doing something for the aliveness of the other. So it's not even a feeling, it's an action. You have a lot of feelings from this action, and they are all good. Some might be slightly painful because you will give away something, but it's an action. And you can easily recognize if somebody loves you. You don't need to listen to his words. Don't ever listen to words of somebody who says, I love you so much. I need you so much. You know, Can't you see that I love you because I need you? Just look at his actions. Mm. And if his actions are made in, the, in an interest for your own aliveness, at least broadly, we all have weaknesses. But if you can broadly see this, then you know that he loves you. And he doesn't even need to say it to you once. 
it's very rare in our civilization, actually. It's very rare. So what I want to say is that in the practice of loving, by doing things which give life, we again mm. do nothing else than executing the desire of this fine nucleus of reality, which is an atemporal, aspatial yearning to give life. We don't do anything else. We just do this. And then we feel good because then we are connected with the core. And then the others feel good because we allow them to feel the connection to the core through mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. So you see, it's actually very, very easy, but it's very, very hard to do this. It's also extremely easy, and this is connecting back to the church authorities, so to say. It's, it's, also, it's also very, very easy because, because you have it in yourself. And it's very hard to listen to this in yourself because you're so afraid to go there. I mean, not you, maybe, but one is easily. We, all, we are all so afraid to go there. But if we were able to go there, or when we can go there, then it's absolutely easy. It's so absolutely self-evident what to do, because we know life from the inside, and we know how to give life from the inside because this is, this is our core. This is what we're made from. There's no doubt, but in this traumatic society, in this traumatizing society, it's, it's nearly impossible to go there. You need a lot of courage. Yeah, you need a lot of courage. I'm thinking of the, you know, at the end of the interior castle, Teresa of Avila, the mystic, writes, after she does this huge architecture, you know, where she's describing very much like the actual physical structure of her town, Avila, these interior circles, mm. this journey into that centermost place that you're describing, and the process of courage that that requires. She ends by saying, in the end, the important thing is not to think much, <laughs> but to love much. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. do whatever awakens you to love. And I think mm -hmm. in the past, even on, on the podcast with Richard Rohr, I kept struggling with this instinct, <laughs> this inner instinct mm -hmm. of mine that was moving outside of, you know, it was moving toward the wilds beyond our fences, to use a term our friend Bio describes. Mm -hmm. It was mm. this, this desire to move away from all of the training wheels, the structures of ideologies that take out of us this instinct mm -hmm. of our own inner authority mm -hmm. and make us dependent mm. on another power telling us that, you know, how to live, how, how to trust, what mm. to trust. And I wonder, Andreas, if, if this is the work of our time is to this return back into the body as an act of trust. You know, I've mm. used this metaphor before where it seems, I said, you know, it's like, it's like we're all gathering. I don't know if you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. But it seems like we're all gathering around the wardrobe. And, you know, the wardrobe can be your religion. It can be a philosophical orientation, whatever it is. But we're all staring at the wardrobe and defining its contours. You know, some people are like, ah, oh, mm. well, you know, this platonic foundation to the wardrobe allows us to blah, da 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 And, you know, other people are worshiping the wardrobe in the shape of religion. Even those who, you know, adhere to a more mystical contemplative worldview. This is still a wardrobe. And I guess what I hear you saying is that 
At a certain point, we must have the courage to walk through the wardrobe and exit into a new landscape, Mm. which is to trust our own feet, to carry us onto new horizons, beyond the constructs of our ideas and our words, is a presence and an opportunity of loving that is far simpler, far harder, but far truer. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so so the, the important thing is that, <laughs> again, it's again paradoxical because all we need is inside of us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it it has always been there and it will always be there and it is absolutely unmistakable. And again, this is the paradox, it is not about us. What I, what I described as being there in the, in the most um, intimate chamber of our heart, this is not us. This is the essence of life which desires to give life. So that's very important. And this, you, you, you can understand the confusion you, you somehow described and delineated because it is important to understand that our innermost core is not us. My innermost core is not me. It is aliveness itself. And this aliveness itself is also the innermost core of, whole, of the whole of reality. Yeah. It's the same innermost core. So it is not me. It is not about my private ideas, my private wishes, my private ideas. It's not about ego. But again, on the other hand, it is not an authority in terms of social hierarchy. And you see there's this double confusion. So one confusion goes into the direction that, well, actually, it is not about my ego. So I need to obey to somebody who um, has more authority and who is more, um, he is on a, on a spiritually higher plane, maybe a priest or the Pope or, 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 or whatever. And, um, and so I'll, I'll need to obey. And then, um, but then you, you disconnect because you don't have any access. They can tell you whatever, and it might be absolutely wrong and violent and you, you're going to do it. So that's not the right idea. The other error, and this is what happened in the, in the beautiful 60s and 70s, the other idea is that, that connecting to the source of life within yourself it's, is about ego, is about realizing your personal desires. And that, that has gone very, very wrong as well. And because it's, it's, it's a wrong idea. I'm not astonished that it went wrong into this direction because um, this civilization is so extremely hungry for love because we banned our contact to this loving center of the world for so long ago. So we're so desperate. And now we try to find this love in, in terms of the ego and its possibilities. In truly functional mystical traditions, the main work done is not elevating the adepts to the hate of mystical experiences, because this will come Mm -hmm. in the presence of the teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The main work is to destroy the ego of those who have these experiences so that they don't think they are something better because they are able to do this. Then they they would again confuse the source of being, which is in everyone, with their own personal ego. So I'm this 
special superpower. Look at so many gurus who have gone this way. Look at so many, so many, so many spiritual teachers and communities who have gone the totalitarian way because they couldn't deal with it. And then again, we are at this point where, where it's also the, the, the story of the church as institution, where a true connection to the central core of reality has become a, an ossified um, hierarchy of people um, to whom the lower the lower members, let's say, need to show their devotion. <laughs> so, so these are two ways to have it wrong. And we, you see, we have, we, have, we have done both, even in, in synchrony, contemporaneously, we have done both wrong. So, so if you want to do this, you're pretty much alone. <laughs> it's not true. You're not, you're not completely alone because, because there, are some, there are some people who know to do this. And I, I, I'd say Richard Rohr, he hasn't fallen on either side of the way, I would say. Is, is one I don't of think he has, but I, I do think that those around him have this instinct to continue yeah. to prop him up onto a pedestal yeah. yes. and build yeah. institutions this around him. Yes, it does. This it happens. Does. This happens. It, 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 you know, and it's so tempting when people come and they say, "You're you're our guru, and you please, please, can we put you on this pedestal?" It's it's absolutely tempting, and it's wrong. No, I yeah. mean it's it's um and 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 you know this is again this is. It's, it's, it, the talk has really taken a very, a very interesting turn for myself. Um, this is where I can, again, go back to bi the biological reality. And I can tell you, okay, so I'm, I'm talking about propping up my individual ego. And, but then just let me take one second to look at my body and what, what, is, what it is doing. And then I realize that I'm actually, my individuality is not existing. I am nothing, as, as, as one of my teachers used to say. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I don't exist. I exist only as a, as a sort of crest of the wave of transformation of matter into matter. I, I don't exist even. So it is, it is absolutely crazy to think that these important things come from me. It's totally crazy. So it's, it's, it's a very good um, medicine to be biologists in this. Mm. And, then, and then you go and breathe together with the trees and, you know, and then it's totally okay to be nothing and to mm. just to be life with, with other life. It's, it's completely okay. I think this is part of why it was so important for me to have you as a part of this journey on this season, because I find that this description of erotic ecology is a realization of much of what the mystics speak of, a biological manifestation of what the mystics speak of. Yeah. And in a yeah. way, I think you articulate the middle way of holding the tension, not collapsing into ego, but also not collapsing into full dependency on a projected yes. power or mm. outer authority. But mm. rather the middle way that mm. I hear you inviting us into is one of deep relatedness. Mm. And in that mm. relatedness, we function by the laws of love that orient us more toward the other, um, the more than human other, community of others, othering themselves, <laughs> manifesting ourselves. This, this shared becoming is the boundaries of love through which this river of creativity can flow. In other words, it keeps us in this place of humility, of unknowing, because we are composting these ideas of I into, mm -hmm. into a shared becoming. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yes. Well, 
I wanted to ask you, and this is in closing, I don't know, do you have a copy of your book there, like handy, the Matter and Desire book? I have to admit, no, I gave them all away. <laughs> I, I had a feeling that this might be the case because I was going to ask you I, to read I, I, something from your book and I was like, I bet he won't have one there. You know, I, I can, I can, you know, as I'm on this screen, I have a PDF copy, even, I have it even open. So if you tell me what you want, you okay, already okay. have an idea of what, I I, what, what you want me to read. I want yeah, you to so, read. So let me just... Okay, good. Let me, let me just... But you're, you're, you're much better in reading it because you don't have a German accent. No, no, I like the German accent. Okay. It's, it's, in, it's, intrinsically okay. part, okay. it's intrinsically part of it. So I, wa I wondered if you would read... <laughs> I, I'll need to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Germans hate their German accent normally. So okay. This might be easier for you to find because it's on, it's on the final page of your last chapter... Um, the voice of happiness. Okay. And okay, it, so it's basically the final, the final, the, the coda. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm basically yeah. having you give away the goods for everyone who's listening. Um, beginning with, <laughs> <laughs> beginning with, I was born with this. You too. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading it. I was born with this. You too. All of us. It is, in fact, the energy with which every birth is conceived. It is the thing that pushes us into life, the deep insight that has no form and no name and that yearns and also confidently knows that this yearning is insatiable and will therefore always be revived anew, no matter how devastating death and breakdown was and is and will be. This is the moment that floods our skin when it sinks into the pillowy green weight of the Teufelsee Lake, the moment in which the pointed ovals of the water lily's petals emerge in the soft perceptions of our body, their whiteness so unblemished by the void, their yellow in its inmost nourishing to our perceptions like a warm egg yolk. This is the reason the woman with the big goggles laughs while the young ducks paddle around her, curious, amazed, bathed in trust. All of this is the encounter with the living other that offers life, with the you that makes us into ourselves, into something that is, in turn, a you for the other, a feeling countenance that gifts trust. We ourselves are this living guarantee, there in our inmost core, which is completely empty, and then fully of the next moment, always an even so, always a yes, a bidding, come, a thank you. Voila, in our inmost core, there it is. As Marsha Rosenberg once described it, it is the way children feel when they feed a hungry duck. A game that makes both parties happy because it consists of nothing other than the exchange of gifts. Naked, unarmored, curious, courageous. Now. Andreas, thank you so much for the ways in which you have invited me more fully into my naked courageous now and the ways in which you invite us all to inhabit our bodily presence in that way in creativity and the expression of love as enlivenment as not about us 
so grateful for your work in this world and so grateful you came on the show. Thanks. Thanks for this, for the, for your fantastic, inspiring question and for this beautiful talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. So we're learning how to compost our ideas to make of our bodies and our presence a reciprocal map of becoming. Make of that a map, which is to say, to unknow our maps and be here. To trade our arrival points, our arbitrary arrival points, for the simple act of giving life, of enlivenment, in that beautiful way that Andrea said, naked, courageous, curious, here, now. So here are a few pieces of True North wisdom I'm taking from this tremendous conversation to close out season three of the podcast, our exploration of composting Christianity. First piece of True North wisdom, I really appreciate Andreas's definition of erotic ecology. I have been talking about it for at least one season of this podcast now, just how much this has influenced my thinking but how he said that one of the greatest tragedies of, of Western civilization is the hijacking of eros into only meaning this uh, sexual consumerism and greediness of human beings, that, that we've equated eros to that is such an impoverished view of its potentiality for enlivenment. When we can shift into understanding the eros, the erotic, as the sense of enlivening, as sensual exchange of communion. This is precisely why I feel that this term and these ideas are such an embodiment of the communion paradigm in contrast to the domination paradigm, which feels like a core takeaway from the entire season. That what needs composting, what needs to die, is anything and everything produces, creates, or sustains these hierarchies of power over, of control, of fear of death, as opposed to a paradigm of enlivening, uh, of a communal worldview, of a shared web of re reciprocity and becoming. So to bring it down to the practical, at least in my own life, sharing some of these ideas with all of you has been a way of articulating my own journey away from religious belief systems that promote that hierarchy of power over. Even within the contemplative, spiritual, mystical realm, there's still a lot of that going on. And at least for me, I have found these ideas of erotic ecology or these ecological creative worldviews as being much more aligned with the experiences and teachings of the mystics I so admire, but also with my own embodied experience and instincts. As a creative, as a woman, the desire to live in a greater and greater web-like way that is not about me, but that is ultimately trusting of my own embodied experience. This brings me to the second piece of True North wisdom I'm taking from this conversation, when Andreas talked about death and in his chapter in his book about death, which remains one of my favorite pieces ever written about death, when he says that death is not a destructive process, it's a creative process. 
So he says he doesn't talk about death as an opposition between, you know, or against life. He doesn't think in, in those binaries, but rather that there's just life and that within life there are these cycles of birth and death. The reason I think this is so crucial and important, and again, to try to bring it to a practical level, is because the fear of death is what keeps us from creativity. It's what keeps us from risk-taking. It's what keeps us locked in belief systems that are uncomfortable, in, in shoes that don't fit us anymore, that then restrict our movements and keep us from being fully alive and being able to move and dance and become. And so, Without that fear of death, or if we can compost death into life and see it as belonging, then we can move through the letting goes, the, the goodbyes, the, the um, separations that are naturally a part of this becoming life. Maybe those goodbyes are institutional. Maybe they're just saying goodbye to a chapter or a season of your life. Or maybe it's saying goodbye to a relationship or series of relationships. What I so appreciate about this reframe of death and the embrace of understanding it as composting life is that whatever is calling you in the wilds beyond your fences, to quote Bayo Okomolafe, whatever those fences are in your life right now, whatever is calling you into that wild can be trusted even if it comes at the price of grief, of having to let go of something or someone or an institution or a religion to make room for what could be. Finally, my last piece of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation with Andreas Weber. I love how he talks about um, the poetic and the creative and the artistic in terms of enlivenment. I loved how he said that creativity and aliveness are two sides of the same coin. And his definition for art, which I'm going to just tuck into my heart forever, is how he described art as something that entices others to yearn for giving life. I just, <laughs> I just love that definition so much. And it feels like it holds that tension that we spoke of between not collapsing into the, the either binary of being completely egoic and being all about following your own goddamn bliss at the cost of everyone and everything, or giving your power and authority completely away to some projected hierarchy of power, um, whether it be spiritual, religious, or otherwise. So this definition for me of art being that which entices others to yearn for giving that life themselves feels like feels like a true north, feels like what I want to orient myself to when I talk about creativity as the site of transformation and, and as its expression. What I mean is that I see that creativity as love, as synonymous with love, as the desire to give our life away in a way that enlivens the whole. I don't do this perfectly at all <laughs> but it's what I aspire to to do this is what I long to become whether it's through my music or my writing or the courses that I teach or this podcast it's 
it's this hunger to continue to give myself away, to express the beauty and experiences that I'm um, witness to in every moment in a way that hopefully helps others, helps you live into that courage in your own life. I hope that this season, this exploration of composting Christianity has been helpful to you. And as I always like to say, take what is useful, take what is animating your own questions and curiosity and leave behind anything that isn't helpful. For me, it's been a really special opportunity to share the progression, uh, the, the decomposing of certain ideas in this process of composting that I've been on personally on my journey from the days that I was a part of the Another Name for Everything podcast with Richard Rohr to the present, how I um, became more focused on creativity and on this erotic ecological worldview. In the end, I still don't know what to call myself, spiritual mutt, mystically inclined, artistic mom, <laughs> creative, I don't know. It just, it doesn't really matter. I just know that I'm not alone. I know that many of you feel the same way. There was once a time when I wanted to worship God on a cross or kneel on a wooden bench or stare up at a wooden pulpit. But now it seems I find the presence of the divine, or at least I feel I can commune with whatever the divine is in the forest, in the wild, in the living, breathing webs of shared becoming. And I guess that summarizes my own journey of composting Christianity. And it's not over, <laughs> it continues. But I wanna thank you for going on this journey with me on this season. And I also want to invite you as we close out this season and this year, if you're wanting to go deeper on some of these topics or explore these ideas with a community of fellow unknowing <laughs> practitioners, you can check out the course offerings that I'm making available this year. I'm calling it The Weave. I think because I am wanting to weave myself more deeply into these ideas and into this way of living and breathing and to animate that um, shared reciprocity and creativity. So I designed seasonal courses around each season of the year to help awaken us to that season's invitation and to do so in community. You can sign up for the courses by taking the whole year's journey with a cohort with The Weave, or you can take the courses individually just one season at a time, beginning with Womb this winter. So check out the links in the show notes below if you'd like to learn more about that. I also want to invite you to consider becoming a patron. Patrons are the only reason we have made it to season three of this little engine that could podcast Unknowing. You can also make a tax-deductible donation to Unknowing. For more on becoming a patron or giving a tax-deductible gift, you can check the links in the show notes below. All right, my friends, in closing of this season, but also as it just so happens in closing of this year, the new year is just around the corner. I offer you this little bit of poetry from the poet David White from his poem, Sweet Darkness, as an invocation, an invitation as a spell for the new year. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one 
to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you.